Hi, I'm Brett Terpstra, and this is Systematic on 5 by 5 Bandwidth for October has been provided by Joyent, the only cloud service that's purpose-built to power today's real-time web and mobile applications. Joyent offers the most cost-effective public and hybrid cloud solutions available today. Here at 5x5, we host all of our web and app servers in the Joyent cloud, so we highly recommend you check them out and sign up for a free trial at joyent.com. My guest this week is Evelyn Jean Pine, an accomplished playwright with a new play called First, which is opening in San Francisco this month. Hello, Evelyn. Hi, Brett. It's great to talk with you. It's nice to talk with you, too. I uh, never had a playwright. I had writers, and I've had screenwriters on, but you're well, my the, first playwright. Well, I think this play will be particularly of interest to your audience, since it's about the First World Altair Computer Conference that took place in Albuquerque in 1976 and where Bill Gates was in a profound controversy with the people who were sharing his software and not buying it. So it's about a fundamental conflict in the computer business that sort of led to Bill Gates becoming Bill Gates. All right. Well, let's dig right into that and to the, and to the play. So it, it starts off early after Bill Gates had just created like Altair Basic. Uh-huh. And Basi- uh, go ahead. Yeah, it's basically a day at this conference where he, he and Paul Allen uh, responded to a call that the Altair computer, which was many people say was the first personal computer, needed Basic. They didn't have it, but they called Ed Roberts, who was the inventor of the Altair, and told him, told him that they had a copy. They then, once he said, whoever gets me basic first gets the contract. So they spent all their time uh, making Altair basic and then took it to Albuquerque. It showed that this personal computer would run. And the Altair began, became incredibly popular at that point. Uh, Ed Roberts had thought he would sell 800 the first year, and he sold 1,000 in the first month. I know in, in 2013, those numbers sound bizarre. But at that time, the idea that anybody could have their own computer was considered absurd by a lot of by, by, quote, normal people, but also by a lot of computer companies. And Ed Roberts was the guy who proved the wrong. Uh, Bill Gates and Paul Allen launched Microsoft as a result of the deal that they cut with Ed Roberts. But immediately, and it seems to be Bill Gates' style, and perhaps because of his relentlessness, he immediately got into a controversy with the customers, the people who were buying this computer. They didn't get the idea that if they bought a copy of this program, they couldn't just then give it to their friends to use as well. And Gates, at 20 years old, decided that he really had to draw a line in the sand about it, and it became a big fight. Famously, he wrote the hobbyists a letter calling them thieves, which infuriated them all the more, and it began to sort of seal his reputation as highly confrontive, but also an exceptionally smart guy. So he, let's see, he kind of took 
the marketing angle of this. Like he was, he was kind of, when you look at Apple and you look at Steve Jobs, he was an idea guy and he, he was in it to make money from the beginning. Uh-huh. Was that kind of Gates approach as well? Uh, like, obviously he did the programming, but then he wanted to get paid for it. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, he wanted to not just get paid for it, but he wanted to get paid in a way that he could build a significant business. I think both he and Paul Allen agreed with it, but but Paul Allen actually was ended up working for the company that made the computer. So Gates had to be the person who was most outspoken. Plus, it seems to me that that's in a way who he was. I mean, he was a kid of privilege who had such a strong sense that his ideas were as good as anybody's. And I think part of what's fascinating about it is that at 20, he would stand up for this. There are people talk about David Bennell for one of them, who was the guy who put this conference together, talks about the fact that you would hear Ed Roberts and Bill Gates yelling at each other. And here's Gates, this 20-year-old Harvard, from Harvard on a leave of absence. And you have Ed Roberts from the Air Force who has run this gritty company that makes model airplanes and kits to build your own calculator screaming at each other. And it's, it's, it's amazing. But what, what intrigues me about it is that idea that Gates was relentless about it. He was not going to be talked into being nice to anybody who took his software without paying for it. He had a no compromise position on this. It sounds like uh, it sounds like Bill Gates is more like Steve Jobs than I ever thought. Uh, is relentlessness kind of a, a quality you admire? Well, I think it's a fascinating quality. I admire it sometimes. Other times I don't. Part of the reason that I write, wrote this play was I was actually looking at another group of people who are relentless, the Quakers. And the Quakers are people who they get an idea and then as a group, they stick with it sometimes over decades and centuries until other people agree with them. Now, the Quakers, for better or for worse, are, have sort of a precious reputation. They're a little bit like unicorns in that, oh, they're so good because I suppose they're a religious group or whatever. So I was trying to think who manifests the same quality of having an idea and not letting go of it. And Bill Gates and this early fight, this fight that really created the modern software business came into my mind. Yeah, I do admire it. Uh, and I think it's really important for creative people. Um, so you just drew a parallel between the Quakers and Bill Gates. I Absolutely. They both dress funny. This is going to make and me sound... sorry all my <laughs> friends who are listening. This is going to make me sound very uneducated, but are, do Quakers use the whole snake thing or is that just Baptist? Oh, no. The Quakers don't use the snake thing. The Quakers are famous for sitting in silence. Yeah. And they sit in silence until God speaks through them. And then they'll say whatever God is saying through them. Well, and that's a, it makes the uh, the parallel to Bill Gates even uh, adds a new dimension to it. 
Yeah, because Gates is many things, but silent he ain't. But but part of what's exciting to me about it is I think relentlessness is a quality for our time. And I think that this play is a play for our time. We're in this moment of technological upheaval and other kinds of upheaval. And you see, or at least I see again and again, people who are willing to be relentless whether that's about should people take my software or not, whether that's about civil rights, whether that's about however they want to change the world or create a work of art or create a product or a business. Those people who are relentless, even if they don't win, tend to have powerful and important experiences. That's what this play is about. And it's about often when we look at what we're relentless about, we really discover who we are. And we see at 20, Bill Gates, through the process of this day, when he's not going to back down, really discovers who he is. In a way, in this play, he becomes Bill Gates and decides, okay, this is how I'm going to change the world, which is a question I think a lot of us ask you know, what can I do to change the world? And he, I think, in this fight and deciding I can make this kind of business, uh, made that decision. I actually think that very few people, I shouldn't say very few, but I think less than half of the population ever thinks, how can I change the world? So those people that are relentless, those people that do spend their time looking for that, Uh they're the ones that stand out. They're the ones that we escalate to like hero status and rightly so i'm personally i'm not relentless about much i'm confrontational i get in fights but i'm pretty quick to drop stuff right i i think that what would be interesting is to discover what you are relentless about though i have to say i love the idea that you can be confrontational and not relentless. Because even as you said that in a way, I thought, gee, I can identify with that, that I want to push back, but then am I willing to sustain that pushback? But I ask myself, and, and I'm sure you feel, feel the same way about certain things. As a playwright, you really have to keep pushing. You have to be relentless. And similarly, when you think about what can I contribute to the world, you have to be relentless or, or you can, you know, sit around and, you, and we all do this. I mean, I think we have to do it, that you spend a lot of time thinking about a variety of things that you want to do. And then it's the person who decides this is it that really makes the difference. There's a made up character in my play because it's a fictional retelling of this moment. And this character has one vision after another vision after another vision, but he can't make any of them come to fruitation because he lacks that relentlessness, even though he has some of the most glorious, uh, fabulous visions. Okay, so here's, here's a question that kind of goes back to the Quaker thing. Yeah. Relentlessness has, it, it, I mean, we, we can see what it does in the end for, you know, uh, the heroic struggle. But a lot of times you find out after being relentless for a while that an idea that you're, you're driving on is actually wrong. 
And then there's this line where some people become like bullishly relentless. And even though in the back of their mind, they know they should acquiesce on a point, they don't. And, and this is true of Microsoft. I mean, uh, ultimately it's why they're losing market share because they're not, they don't shift direction. They, they drive for what, 20, 30 years now on the same, same idea and it worked really well for a really long time, obviously, looking at Bill Gates' personal bank account. Um, but I think there's a point where relentlessness becomes bullishness. Brett, I think what you said is really fascinating. I think it both becomes bullishness and part of what relentlessness has difficulty understanding is that everything passes. That that which we were relentless about, as you say, uh, 40 years ago, may no longer be what needs that relentlessness anymore. And I do think, and, and this comes up in my play first as well, this idea that life is about this push, 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 and even the things that we love the most, care the most about, have nurtured, have pushed for eventually are going to fade. And how do we understand that? And, and part of what's challenging is I think at 20, and this may be a good thing, at 20, we don't understand that. But as time goes on, more and more we do see that. So, so part of it is, yeah, I'm on the wrong track or I'm relentless about something I shouldn't be. But every day people are relentless about things that aren't going to come to fruition or oh, I know. are going to fail. Yeah, look at Congress. Yeah, perfect example. Perfect example. But, but also, there's those who are relentless and win, but they're not going to win forever. Right. And that's really, I mean, part of what's a pleasure about writing about this play, about Bill Gates and this remarkable moment in history this this world before computers, if you will, that some people have trouble even remembering existed or before personal computers, I should say. But that this, this world and then these machines emerged and it seemed like, okay, this is forever. And now even that is starting to fall away and we're on relentlessly to the next the next time, the next thing, if you'll excuse the 60s jargon. Uh, and it's, it's bittersweet and marvelous uh, to think about. Time and marches to experience. on. Well, time doesn't just march on. Time's going to rip you down and tear your throat out, just like a relentless person sometimes also I can. Thought, I thought time healed all wounds. Well, I mean, time does both. <laughs> That's why it's time. Tear you down, build you back up. Yeah, well, no, it's not going to build you back up. It's going to build <laughs> someone else back up. One of the things that one of the characters says in, in, in the play first is that the that today or that the world time lusts to become the future. So that the and then the future lusts to become today. That there's an idea that just the world beyond human beings just 
lusts to move into fruition, or I shouldn't say beyond human beings, with human beings, but with that continual creation of the future becoming today, a lot of things collapse and disappear. I like it. I like it. Um, I'm going to take a quick sponsor break, and then I want to talk a a little bit about how you write. Sure. I'd love to. All right. Uh, This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it easy to create your own website. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code CANDYCORN, all one word. Squarespace is constantly updating their platform with new features, new designs, and more support. They have beautiful designs for you to start with and tons of style options for you to adjust so you can really create your own space online. Squarespace takes care of hosting, SEO, and even makes sure your site automatically looks great on any device. It's really simple to use, but if you want some help, there are over 70 Squarespace employees on the customer care team, which is based in New York City. Their office has been nicknamed the Care Bear Lair, and they've won numerous awards, most recently a Gold Stevie Award. While you're there, make sure you check out their homepage, too. It showcases some great videos that show how Squarespace fits everyone differently. Squarespace is always updating their site with fun new branding, which has won numerous design awards from prestigious institutions like FWA, The Webbies, and Forbes. And awards with three W's, but that sounds silly in a podcast because it's one of those things you have to see to understand. Anyway, as we said earlier, you can try Squarespace for free, no credit card required. And if you decide to purchase, it starts at just $8 a month. That includes a domain name if you sign up for a year. Make sure you get 10% off and support the show by using the offer code CANDYCORN. A big thanks to Squarespace for supporting 5x5 and Systematic. All right, so when you... Let's talk about playwriting in general. Uh, I mean, as far back as you want to go. What's your uh, favorite way to write? Uh, Typewriter, pen and paper, computer? What do you like to write on? Well, uh, two things. First of all, I do write on a Mac... But my very favorite technology for writing is is one of the technologies that's dying out, and that's cursive script, which they're stopping to with a pencil and paper, which they're stopping to teach in the schools. People aren't going to learn script anymore. And what bothers me about it is it's a technology that teaches us that we'll always have another idea because the letters connect again and again. And so I'm not interested in penmanship at all, but what I love about writing cursive is there's that feeling as your arm moves and your pen moves across that page that there will always be another idea. So it's a fantastic technology for telling yourself how creative you are. But once I do that, then I do work on a Mac and clean it up, make it beautiful, format it, rewrite, 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 rewrite. All right. This is, this is interesting though. Um, cursive. It, do you think computers killed cur- cursive? Because I used to get letters from my grandmother that were pretty much unreadable. I've seen postcards from the twenties through the fifties. Can't read them. Like I understand the art behind it, but cursive on, honestly, like I can track through my lifetime, the decline of cursive. And I'm not sure exactly what to contribute that to, but I haven't seen anyone write cursive for a long time. 
Well, it's absolutely, I think, the, the rise of typing and... And by the rise of typing, I mean specifically that everybody types because typing used to just be a woman's thing. But now everybody types because they're typing on computer keyboards. And so there's no need to learn cursive anymore. And of course, you can type as fast as you can write script. So supposedly that takes care of it or or faster. But what's so interesting to me about what you say is of course those things you're not supposed to read unless you can, you know, the letter from the past or the letter from your grandmother. She's writing it to someone who she believes can read her handwriting. So the idea is it's not supposed to be a historical artifact. It was a moment in time when someone who loved someone else was was writing about that. And part of what's fabulous about handwriting is how personal it is. It's not a choice of font. It's, as Gertrude Stein would say, it's the blood that pours from your heart, down your arm, down your arm, through your veins, out through the pen and onto the paper. But, but it's, I think, going away. And that's going to be fine. Uh, typing is good. Fonts are good. Images are certainly rising up in in wonderful wonderful ways but but cursive is a technology to spur creativity and as i say it's a fantastic one okay so you you like to write you like to start on paper you like script you like to move it to a mac where do you like to write i like to write there are really two places one i have a studio office which is my dining room I used to share my office with my husband, but as you well know, Virginia Woolf says every woman should have a room of her own. And so I have my uh, studio in what's the dining room, which is marvelous, and write there a lot. But I also go to one of San Francisco's classic cafes, Borderlands Cafe, which up until maybe six months ago, four months ago, didn't have Wi-Fi. They were so hardcore in their support of me, (laughs) not of me personally, but of people like me who are trying to get creative work done but have difficulty staying off the internet. So Borderlands is a beautiful cafe and I work there. And part of what I like working there and like working around people is a playwright is someone who really... We're not so much literary artists, but artists of action. And so being in a world, seeing how people move, the sounds they make, what they say, how people's face changes as they move across the room, what it sounds like if someone drops their latte and it splatters all over, that's really the material out of which we create. And so working in a cafe where there is that kind of action and noise is really pleasing to me. I have a dear friend who's a terrific novelist who has real difficulty being there for the very reason I love it. And Borderlands is a very quiet, lovely cafe. But to her, it's still too noisy. She needs less input, I guess. How about you, Brett? Well, I can understand your friend's perspective. I, uh, when I think about a coffee shop in my head, I just, it's a cacophony of, of distractions. But I have found that when I'm actually there, it all becomes white noise. Uh, 
like I don't use I don't use crowds for creative inspiration like you do, and I think that's that's really intriguing in and of itself. But I do find that my mind adapts to distraction, and I I can focus through it without a lot of effort. Like it just I don't know. It's like getting used to like a a, a bruise on your arm, and you just kind of learn to live with it until it's gone except for when you move and then it hurts. And there are those moments where you come up and realize you're surrounded by talking people. Right. And I think, Uh, I I think in my head that I work better in silence, but the fact is I do bad work. If I don't communicate with anybody, if I'm not even uh, taking in just surroundings, if I get too focused, it's working in a vacuum and I do bad, bad things that I don't notice until I share them with the public. And I think I'm more conscious of it when I'm in a more social setting. Yeah, I, I identify with that piece of it. I think that's one of the wonderful things as a writer about working around a lot of people because it reminds us that what we're doing is a social art, even though when we're struggling with it ourselves, it doesn't feel like that. I do think that your description of your ability to make a lot of noise in a cafe into white noise is a, again, sort of the physiology of relentlessness. The fact that all human beings have the ability when they really decide they need to focus on something to turn the world around them, uh, to shape it sort of psychologically to what they need. So, okay. The, the idea of, uh, attention deficit disorder is relatively new. Like we, in in your youth, it didn't exist. Do you think that, that? Do you think that that it was as widespread back then, or do you think that this attention kind of uh, overload is a more like uh, technology based thing? I think it's a great question. I think that. People now have more distractions for sure, right? I mean, I, I teach at San Francisco State Performance Studies. And when I tell students that they're not allowed to use their cell phones during class, only on break, it's, it's like horrifying to them. They, the idea that I'm actually saying they shouldn't check to see if they got a text is something that is almost intolerable. And part of what they learn through the semester is don't, you can do it, right? But, but I also feel that we now have this way that we want to give labels to the way different people experience and are in the world. And I think attention deficit disorder, and I'm not saying that this is a non-existent uh, disorder, but but I also think that we don't want to say, oh, just different people find different things interesting and want to really focus on one thing and not the other. That it's a whole broad spectrum of how people live. And I think it's unfortunate that that these days, because in some ways, ironically, thanks to Steve and Bill, people are now supposed to sit and focus on a computer a lot of the day, uh, that people who... Don't nece- aren't necessarily able to do that or some other thing get told that they have a disorder where they may not. They, that may not be what they're supposed to be doing or them at their best. Let's put it that way. 
it's reasonable to to uh, to say that ADD is overdiagnosed. But as far as the label goes, I spent uh, I spent 21 years of my life not knowing why I couldn't do certain things and why I did do certain things. And it wasn't until I had labels on things like Tourette's and ADD that I could actually research and find explanations for a lot of things. Just I just had to say that. But no, I really appreciate that. And I think that that's I think that's really true in that. It, of course, it's true because you're saying it, but it's also true because those that's labels. That's not necessarily the case. Uh oh, but because those labels sang to you and your life, versus being something that was like, oh, let's this we can't figure this kid out. Let's paste this on his forehead. Something, okay? something thrust on somebody. Yeah, yeah, and and somebody. I mean, I think people uh, are really complex. And I, I agree with you. I think labels can really help us understand our world, but then they can also limit our world and limit both how we see ourselves and how others see us. I would agree with that. I mean, it's interesting with, with Bill Gates, people ask me, and of course I've never met him for me. Um, he's somebody who I've researched a lot. And then this character that I've looked at at this point in time, but people want to say, well, is he, you know, ADD, is he Asperger's, blah, 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 blah. You know, that there's this desire to label him rather than allow him to be fabulously individual or ferociously individual, depending on one's point of view. All right. Um, okay. So we know what you write on. We know where you write. And I guess the the next question would be how how does your process start when you go to a cafe without internet obviously you have some <laughs> discipline when you're looking at the blank page which is something i end up talking about a lot here cuz i have this horrible thing where a blank page is like the worst thing in the world to me um how do you how do you start the idea and how do you get moving on it i I, I want to say that I'm in your camp on the blank page being horrible. And it's, in, it's interesting to me because I do find that, that writers sometimes break down into one of those two camps. They love and think that the blank page is delicious or they look at it and it's like, oh, my God, get that away from me. And I'm someone who I just start writing and I will write about anything. I try to always have writing available to rewrite. I try to really capture ideas in all kinds of ways. So if I'm stuck and horrified by the blank page, I have somewhere to go. I, I, I won't let myself alone with a blank page too long because otherwise I'll run screaming from the cafe to the nearest bar or park or somewhere else. To, yeah, that's exactly uh, my thing. Yeah. If, if I know there's a blank page, if I know there's a blank page in a room, I'll find subconsciously ways to not even go in that room. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, it's the old thing. You got to force yourself. I remember I years ago interviewed Ursula Le Guin and, and we were talking about writing and, and, you know, this idea. She was talking about writing every day. And she said, that's what separates the lamb from the sheep. And I just thought that that was so cute, this idea that, you know, let's, 
let's sit down and do it. Not, you know, that's, that's what it is. And, and for those of us who like just hate that blank, blank page, it is a, it is an idea of forcing ourselves to do it. And then there's the deep pleasures though, of getting to, getting to write as time goes on. Right. And I think, I think for me, uh, writing code, writing software is probably like a writer's love of writing. Like when it comes to software, I see a problem or I have an idea and I can just sit down and I can just make it happen. If, when it comes to writing, which I do a fair amount of between blogging and, and, uh, print writing, um, I find that most of those, in most of those situations, I'm making it for other people. I mean, that's kind of what writing is all about. Whereas with software, I'm making it for me first. And that's easier for me. Do, do you find like knowing that your every, every word that goes onto the page after it gets through editing and production and everything is for somebody else? Do you find that intimidating? Does that add to the blank page syndrome? Um, what, well, it's a couple of things you said to me are really fascinating. The idea that software you see is more intimate and personal and not writing for someone else when it's absolutely something that really doesn't exist until someone uses it. I I just think that's fantastic that, that you have the opposite feeling about it. For me, I have to admit that I'm somebody who, in terms of the writing process, what I love most is rewriting. So, yes, I, I, I like have that terror of the blank page. And then I just try to get writing, 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 writing on it. And then I just rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. So is, you, you treat it like clay. I mean, you, you're, you're sculpting. I, I treat it both like but like clay, I'm sculpting and I'm definitely throwing a lot out and I'm building on what's there. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a process in which I really like to play around. And although it can be exhilarating sometimes, what, you know, there are those moments when suddenly you're writing and stuff's just flowing out of you. I'm someone who I find my best work by far is, is work that's really been worked over. One of the things that's really fascinating is now there's this new academic field of software studies, which gets at some of the stuff that, that you may do and think about, which is this idea that a programmer like you is both embedding the existing culture as you create software and also creating new culture that there's this feeling that software should be studied like a novel by Tony Morrison or William Faulkner, that it is, it is important in terms of how we can understand ourselves by looking back at the code that we use again and again. And right now our world is so embedded with code that I think, even though I don't know that much about software, I think there's something marvelous about people looking at it in this way and beginning to really understand what's the impact of all this work that people like you do on us, not just in terms of functionality, but as acts of imagination that express who we are 
in this moment and who will shape who we are for years to come. I'm glad to hear you say that. A lot of people don't think of software as acts of imagination, but they really are. You're creating something from nothing and you're solving a problem. And yeah, it's a very creative pursuit for some of us. Well, not only are you create you're creating something out of nothing and you're allowing through nothing in a way, or what would look to someone like me as nothing, not just you're, you're creating agency. Things are happening on the basis of what you're doing. It's, it's, it's fabulous. Well, thank you. Um, so have you ever used an app called text expander? I haven't. Tell me all about it. I'm, I'm about to. Um, Text Expander sponsoring this week's um, uh, Systematic, and it is one of my all-time favorite Mac utilities. Uh, you can use it to, sh- to expand short abbreviations that you type into full snippets of text that you've defined. So basically, uh, if, if you type on my computer minus equals, which are right together up in the upper right corner, if you type those, it, it fills in my email signature. Uh, so it's just a quick two-finger swipe and it fills in something that I write every 10 minutes. Uh, And that's the kind of thing that it can do all over your system. Um, You can also use it to trigger Apple scripts and shell scripts. So if you're a nerd like me, you'll use that a lot. I have uh, quite a few free snippet groups available on my website that you can check out at uh, brettterpshire.com slash TE snippets, share slash TE snippets. I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, text expander also has a cool thing called fill in snippets, which let you set variables in a snippet and, uh, and fill them in on the fly. So when you trigger it, you can have text fields, pop-up menus, and options sections that you can type in, in a little pop-up dialogue and then fill in dynamic text, uh, helps you automate a lot of the tedious work that goes into things like answering emails or anything repetitive. Text expander is also available on your iPhone and iPad as text expander touch. Because of the limitations of iOS, it doesn't work in the background like it does on the Mac, but the developers at Smile created an SDK, Software Development Kit, so that other apps can integrate Text Expander support. I'm losing my voice because I'm so excited. Um, there are over 140 apps that have Text Expander support, including most of the leading iOS text editing apps. Uh, they recently had to revamp for iOS 7, and the the number of developers that are piling back on instantly shows you that uh, text expander support is really important to these developers. Um, I've even created a snippet group for Markdown that you can use with text expander touch. If you write Markdown on iOS uh, text expander costs thirty four ninety five, but systematic listeners can get 20% off of full licenses with the coupon code systematic. The discount applies to family packs and office packs, but does not apply to upgrades. How does that sound, Evelyn? It sounds fantastic. It's mind-boggling. All right. It's time for the top three picks. Great. All right. So uh, we go, yeah, we go round robin and you get to tell me what your first one is and then we'll go back and forth and talk about each one. Um, What would your first of three top picks be? Well, I know your listeners are very familiar with this because they just heard the Scrivener guru talk, but numero uno would be Scrivener. Do you write a lot in Scrivener? All the time. It's a fantastic setup for someone like me. It allows me to work on multiple programs. 
so is it uh is it ideal for playwriting because i've never considered that before yeah absolutely it's a to me it's a fabulous long project uh you know uh setup i can have a ton of different projects going and move back and forth with ease and at the same time it feels very cute and cuddly to me it's because it is feels like oh i've got this little notebook under my arm even though it's in my computer and it has all my writing there it's just fantastic they do have formatting for plays and movies and and that piece of it and that's very good but that's not why i love it i love it because it's it can have, it can include all my writing and link it up in all kinds of cool ways now that you mention it i do recall that scrivener has setups uh specifically for plays but i deleted them so long ago <laughs> that i forgot yeah but it's fantastic awesome yeah we won't talk too much about scrivener because everyone heard about it last week uh but that is an awesome top pick so oh my gosh i just realized i took all these notes and did all this research and forgot to come up with my three top picks so i'm gonna just randomly pick some for my first one, I'm going to mention, I got to make sure I get the name right because it's relatively new. It's for web developers, which this is going to be very uninteresting to you no. um, because it's <laughs> it's very specific to uh, web development. It's called Emmet Lifestyle, and it's, an, uh, it's a system, I guess you'd call it, that works between Sublime Text, the text editor, and Safari or Chrome and gives you instant live updates as you edit CSS files. So the style of the web page changes as you type. And it's, I mean, there's a lot of programs out there right now that will update your web browser uh, whenever you save your file. This actually creates a bridge that just, it's completely live, like the old um, CSS edit and uh, the current Espresso can do internally. But this works outside of your text editor. It's really cool. It sounds fantastic. It's called Emmet Lifestyle? Yes. Uh, I believe it's from the same people that make the Emmet plugin for Sublime Text. I should have looked that up. But yeah, it is. Okay. That, that one won't be good for a lot of conversation either. <laughs> well, let me try another one. Yes, go for it. My number two is Thomas Pynchon's The Bleeding Edge. Okay. It's his new book, and it, he probably has a character in it called Emmett Lifestyle, knowing <laughs> Pynchon. But this is a novel that I got and started reading. It's by far, for me at least, his most accessible novel, and I'm on public transit, and I'm roaring with laughter. People are either want to sit down with me or like or running to the complete other end of the car. It's a fantastic book about the technology business, about 9-11, of course, because it's pinching. It's about paranoia and the possibility of language as a way to understand the world. But it's really gorgeous. And I, I want to mention it specifically for people who've never, and I know all your listeners have probably read a lot of Pynchon, but there are a lot of people who haven't because they think, oh, you know, it's so dense and all that. This is lovely. It's wonderfully accessible and it's really fantastic book. I recommend it. 
I will admit to have never heard of Pynchon. Uh, what what kind of stuff does he like? What genre would he normally be categorized in? He would be categorized as a novelist who writes about paranoia and who writes these massive books, though not all of them. His classic and probably one of the greatest books of the 20th century was Gravity's Rainbow, which is about technology also, about the V2 rocket during World War II. But he's hilarious, like I say, one of his characters could be Emmett Livestyle. Uh, He's also exceptionally warm, like all really great novelists, that he's talking about some very horrific things, and yet in a way that makes you want to put your arms around someone, wants you makes you want to be with your sweetheart, makes you want to smile at a kid, all that stuff. Sounds fascinating. Yeah, great book. All right. Yeah, I'm going to check this out. I'm reading through the uh, the summaries on his website right now. Yeah, this looks great. Um, is, is it all set in present tense, or it's not like uh, like futuristic or anything? Well, it's it's not futuristic. In fact, it's set slightly in the past. So it's 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 uh, set in in 2001. Cool, interesting. I I tend to find myself attracted to things that are about the future and people's like visions of, but I think that there's also a place for people's reinterpretation of history. Well, well, let me tell you about this then, because I would say that Gravity's Rainbow, which came out in 1976, which is the same year which my play first is set in, actually now reads as if it's happening today, even though it takes place in the past. I mean, I feel very strongly that the ability to look into the past to figure out what the future lusts to become is is profoundly exciting, at least to me. So check check out Pynchon, check out that book. Definitely will. All right, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna mention another piece of software that I think you might actually find interesting. Um, it's called Acto Tracker, and it's not a gorgeous application. It won't be the most beautiful thing you've ever used. But what it does is track everything you do on your computer in a very NSA kind of way. And it records like what website you were looking at, what application you were using, what document you had open. And it's, it's just for you. It's a way for you to go back through and see what you've been doing, where you spent most of your time, and remember things that you worked on at 4 in the morning and then forgot by 8 a.m., uh, this is the thing that sets it apart for me uh, from all the others that kind of do this is it has a journal feature built in so you can add notes to yourself within the, the chronological listing of things you've been doing. So I can make quick, uh, quick notes like I call them what was I doing notes so that at four in the morning I can take a note and then still be able to find it the next day. It sounds fantastic. I mean, it sounds like a play or a novel. <laughs> it, it just is fantastic. It's so evocative to me. I, I, I love it. And, and I always, because I pay no attention to that, and I would love to really say, okay, where have I been? What have I done? It is actually really handy. And I like the point that you say that it's for yourself rather than, than for me to look in on my 16-year-old or something like that. 
Yeah, no, that's creepy. I would never do that. Okay, so what's your third? Is it yeah, third pick? Well, am I allowed to pick my own play, or is that considered uh, inappropriate? I have rarely ever stopped anyone from picking anything. Okay, well, I'd like to to plug this play. It's it's first. It's going to open in San Francisco on October 10th and run through November 3rd at Stageworks. And it's really about that moment that the personal computer emerged and gave us this world now with cell phones and Skype and podcasts that we live in today. And it's a wonderful cast. We've been rehearsing our hearts out. Uh, Jeremy Kahn, a fantastic young actor, plays Bill Gates at 20. And I really encourage people to see it. It's an opportunity to really think about the future by remembering this is how things emerge. They, they don't emerge necessarily when we think they're emerging. And the person who we think is going to be the star is not necessarily the person who at the end is basking in the limelight. I've noticed that you have kind of a, an attraction to the beginnings of things. I, I love that moment when we feel the world is brand new. Now, sometimes that is the beginning of things, but sometimes it's just what we feel. And part of what I really like about first is that actually was a moment where there were people going there, not all of them, but going, wow, I feel like everything's brand new and I'm brand new. And it was the beginning of something. And then there's also a waitress who's a major character in the play who's just sitting there saying, oh, this is a day when I've worried about the fact that the light in the cafe keeps blinking on and off for no reason. So, so that sense. I also wrote a play called Astonishment about the first motion picture and that impact that that had on everyone's imagination. And then another moment that I really like is the moment that the Olympians totally destroyed the t- Titans and the, the Titans, you know, are Prometheus is chained to a cliff and poor Hephaestus, who's the son of Zeus, has to go chain him up there and realize we won. But what does that mean for me? Like, do I really want to be an Olympian? Is this really time for happiness? So, yeah, I really love those moments. And sometimes feeling like everything is brand new is exhilarating. And sometimes it's terrifying. And often it's a mix. I get it. I think every, every good piece of, uh, of artwork is really about a moment like a postcard. And yeah, absolutely. Can I throw one more pick your way? You can wait until after I do my last one. Oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I want to hear yours. Um, okay, so, so having uh, a lack of preparation, I quickly scrambled here to find what is the most useful thing that's currently running on my computer. And I'm going to have to go with Drop Zone. Uh, it's an older application that has been regularly updated with bug fixes. And I can't recall offhand if I mentioned it before, but what it does is sit up in your menu bar and give you an icon that you can drag files to. And when you hover over it, it pops up a palette with different actions that you've defined. So, for example, if I drag a file to it, I have an action that will, say, upload my podcast to 5 by 5 one that will put files onto my website as a shareable link one that will open up a diff so I can see the differences between two versions of a file. 
uh, optimize images, uh, etc. Um, and that you can also have different actions when you click on something as opposed to dropping a file on it. And you can basically make Drop Zone do anything that you do regularly. So it doesn't have to be as nerdy as mine. You can you can make it open URLs that you drag to it from other places, etc. Um, and you can write your own plugins for it if you know a little Ruby. Uh, not that that's a you know common thing, but it is cool that it's so extensible. Sounds fantastic. I make things sound fantastic. They are fantastic. And you make them sound fantastic. <laughs> okay, so you, you have a bonus pick for us. Yeah. I wanted to suggest, because I know that a lot of different types of people listen to this podcast, a lot of them very creative. I And you asked me where I wrote. One of the great experiences I had this summer was I had a month-long residency at the Jurassic Foundation in Woodside, California. And they have residencies for artists. They're interested in multimedia. They're interested in writers. They're interested in poets, visual artists, whoever. But often creative people don't have time to take a month off, disconnect, be in nature. But Jurassic gives you an opportunity to do that. So for the artists who are listening, who are saying, I need time, I need the blessing of time, I suggest that they check out the Jurassic organization. And of course, it was set up by the great Carl Jurassi, who's the guy who invented the birth control pill. So it's a wonderful <laughs> use of all the money that he got as a result of that crucial discovery. Well, once you have the birth control pill, you got to find that extra time. Absolutely. How do you spell that? You spell it uh, D-J-E-R-A-S-S-I dot org. All right. It was the DJ that was throwing me off, but I did Absolutely. have it in my browser history. Um, resident artist program. Really splendid. Yeah, I would love to. Uh, it's kind of like a, 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 what would you call it? Like an asylum for writers where you can just go and just and write. It, and part of what's wonderful is it's international and it's across all disciplines. So you taught, you're there with the inmates of the asylum are from around the world. They're working in all kinds of different medium. In fact, it's interesting, or media, excuse me, that you mentioned that I saw writing like sculpting because one of the people I was most impressed there was a sculptor and just realizing how he struggled with physical material was remarkable. And it's very cool to be hanging out with Everyone's so serious. Well, not serious like glum, but serious like committed and relentless about their work. And to see them at it and to be part of it is really wonderful. I, I, I went to art school and, uh, and I, it was, you know, full international community with all mediums. Um, like everything from interactive multimedia, which is what I did, all the way to like welding, 3D design. Yeah, oh and man. that yeah, that environment it, it's huge because you 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 suck up like creative energy from all the different disciplines. Totally, I agree. It's just invaluable. I mean the the time and what's so great at Jurassic is you can spend all the time you need to work by yourself on your own art, and then there's this community of brainy, brilliant, lively, joyous people who you can hang with. So it's really a blast. Awesome. I'm glad you I'm glad you mentioned it. 
great. All right. So let's see. You can find information about First at uh, firsttheplay.com. Yes. And when did you say it was opening? It's going to open October 10th in San Francisco at Stageworks. All right. And you can get tickets through firsttheplay.com? Absolutely. All right. And you can also find First on Twitter at firsttheplay. And then uh, Evelyn can be found at E-V-Y-P-I-N-E, Evie Pine. Uh Uh-huh. And uh, I am... T.T. Scoff everywhere. Is there anywhere, anywhere else you want people to be able to find you? That's, that's wonderful. Of course, they can always see me at the Borderlands Cafe. <laughs> Come right with me. <laughs> but they can't Skype you there because, oh, you said they do have Wi-Fi now. Right. They do during the weeks. It's do you tough. use it when you're there? I, I do occasionally. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to build up the discipline so I won't, <laughs> but it ain't easy. Yeah. That's uh, the whole point. It sounds like of going there was to separate yourself from Wi-Fi. So. Well, for me, probably there are other people there who had much more important reasons, but that was my reason. (laughs) I have to jump in here. This is Brett from the future, and I was overtired when we recorded this, and I forgot a sponsor. So we'll just pretend this didn't happen, and I'll tell you about MailChimp.com, easy email newsletters. MailChimp helps you design email newsletters, share them on social networks, integrate with services you already use, and track your results. It's like your own personal publishing platform. They help you customize your sign-up form to match your brand so you can share it on websites and integrate it into your Facebook page. You can even collect sign-ups from an iPad or laptop. And importing an existing list in a MailChimp is a snap, no matter how it's formatted. And you can personalize everything your subscribers see, including sign-up forms and confirmation emails. And there's never been a better time to try MailChimp. With 2,000 subscribers, you can send 12,000 emails per month forever. Just visit MailChimp.com slash 5 by 5 to learn more. All right. Well, Evelyn Jean Pine, thank you very much for being here today. My absolute pleasure. Thank you, Brett. And we will talk to everybody in one week. Thanks for listening.